fake, fake, fakeity fake. Hi, I'm Jody. And I'm Vienna. And welcome to Imperial News, where I spend my whole week listening to the far-right podcast Rebel News and talk about the new year of transphobia with my friend Vienna. Okay. <laughs> same, different number, same transphobia? Is that what we're, what we're going with, or...? I, I do wonder when, I mean, it'll never end. There's always hatred towards the LGBTQ plus coming from fascism, you know. But, like, I do wonder when this particular panic will come to an end. Like, they've already seen it, like, fail with the election results uh, on the last midterm uh, in America. That's all they campaigned on. And it was, like, the worst showing for a midterm election in history for the uh, party not in power. So it's like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know why. I, I think it's like they realize that their base loves this shit. So they're just going to keep going with it, even though it's clearly a losing strategy. Uh, but yeah, new year and they're still going to keep doing it. So <laughs> we're going to keep covering it. Scottish independence might happen because of it. So, you know, there's some good things. <laughs> Some funny you? things. Yeah. <laughs> How are you, Vienna? Um, I'm all right. I I'm over winter. I'm I'm pretty ready for uh, sunlight and all that to be back. And I have this annoying little like thing on my lip that touches me every time that I speak or close my mouth or do anything. Um, and it's kind of driving me crazy. Otherwise, I'm over. I'm yeah, all right. How are you? Have have we even had a winter? Like it is, it, I mean, of course the the lack of sunlight, etc. But like, it's been mild most of this winter, and like disturbingly so. Like we've only had one snow day really, and that was like the major storm before Christmas, and beyond that, it's been like rain, we which had is two weird. days of intensely bad storm, and then. It's been like, yeah, like 10 degrees ever since. Yeah, it's it's unsettling. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm... <laughs> things are bad. Whoa. Yeah, I know. But like, I don't know. This is like, I feel like it's going to be the warmest uh, winter on record. I mean, like, I, I feel like we've had warmer days in like January that have been like unsettling. But like, we it hasn't been as warm, but it's been consistently like not cold. <laughs> yeah you know very very weird uh yeah at one point i broke my jean jacket back out like yeah i was just like oh i can't even do a winter coat it's too warm it's it's very weird my kids are expressing sadness and not making snowmen and stuff like like it's just so weird it's so weird but uh yeah i'm fine i i will uh acknowledge to our uh listeners that we uh unintentionally took december off <laughs> uh in part because uh there was some scheduling uh, conflicts early on and then i got super sick like just really horribly sick to the point where i couldn't talk like my throat had uh completely closed off and it, it was like weird because it like hit right around uh just before christmas and then i had like a few days where i felt good and then just was sick again until uh really until this past weekend so <laughs> uh and it's been like the first few days where i haven't coughed like i'm not coughing anymore which is like you know the first time in a whole month and uh it, it sucked 
I, I don't know what it was. It wasn't COVID. I, I'm guessing it was this RSV thing that everyone keeps talking about. But either way, I am feeling better now. And I am glad. <laughs> I have actually, like, developed just, like, this little tiny bit of a cough this morning. Like, not even, like, loud enough to, like, actually be considered of a cough, but just kind of, like, you know, my chest is moving and my lungs are trying to do something. And I was just, like, laughing to myself this morning, being like, oh, yeah, of course Jody's finally better and <laughs> now I'm getting it. Because we traded off at one point there. We're yeah, like, yeah. You were fine, and then I was sick for a week, and then you were back to being sick. Yeah, I, I remember, because you were, yeah, you, yeah, right before I got sick, you were sick. But it, it's, like, weird, too, because I got it really bad. My wife didn't get sick at all. I did, and, like, it, my son did not get sick. My daughter was sick. I'm pretty sure she was the one who gave it to me, and then I might have given it back to her. But, uh... And she was pretty bad, uh, but not as bad as me. But, like, I had it the worst out of our whole family. And I don't know if, like, you know, I'm not the smallest person. So, like, <laughs> I don't know if, like, uh, my general state of well-being also affected the the outcome of this disease. But, like, it sucked, whatever it was. And uh, I'm just glad that it's done. Which means we, we can get back to recording stuff. Uh, but also, uh, we had delays in the bonus episode as well. And that will also... Uh, come out we're i'm recording with uh, eric tonight so we will have the december bonus episode out and then eventually in january we, we will record the january episode so sorry for the delays but uh if i have no voice i it's weird doing an audio medium and when you can't talk <laughs> and i couldn't talk it was the weirdest thing i sounded like uh like i was dying uh that being said, we are skipping the month of December, because largely for December, they don't talk about much anyways. It's like many people, they phone it in in December. There was only one story really worth touching on, and we will get to it in this uh, episode anyways. But we are skipping December, and we are moving right to January, so we might as well uh, jump right into the new year. Yeah. Happy new... Ten. Nine. Eight. <laughs> Happy New Year! <laughs> Hello, my rebels. Hello, my rebels. I'm a good boy. I'm a weirdo. So we are covering the week of January 2nd to January 6th of 2023. And the first episode on January 2nd uh, is obviously the year in review episode. Now, this is the only episode Ezra was in this week. The rest of the episode, I guess he's on vacation or some nonsense. So he must have like pre-recorded uh, the January 2nd episode. Now, it's worth going over just because I'm curious... What you think, Fiano, uh, in part because Ezra spends the whole episode listing his top five stories of 2022. Now, I'm curious what you think, out of the year that we just have had, what Ezra's top five stories of 2022 would have been. Convoy. Okay. Um, the, like, trial from the convoy. Okay. Um, Alexa getting shot. They're gonna play that scene. <laughs> um, 
the teacher in Oakville. Okay. Uh, they sent Ari to uh, the World Economic Forum or whatever. Or the WHO in Europe somewhere. All right. So so you did get uh, three out of five, I think. So the first the big one was obviously the convoy. And they spent most of the ep- most of the like what happened in 2022 episode they spend most of this over half of the episode like talking about the convoy they never once mention the trial like the the inquiry uh so they mainly just focus on the fact that oh we produced a documentary on the coots blockade they mention uh, of course you mentioned alexa being shot so uh and of course they had to play the clip of her being shot <laughs> Uh, and Ezra again acknowledges, like, oh, I'm so sorry. I have to make you listen to it again. <laughs> uh, but, like, th- so that was all just the convoy. The other ones you got there was, uh, it, it wasn't Avi being sent to the Who. It was uh, Tara Ugolini. And she got to, uh, I guess, uh, jump question Tedros, the leader of the WHO. Uh, so yeah. they, he did include that. Uh of course, the, the teacher in Oakville, that was uh, mentioned as well. The other two uh, that you missed, one was the uh, the farmer protest in uh, the okay. Netherlands. Crickets? Not crickets. Ah. The fifth one you wouldn't know, and this is the one story in December that we missed, which is uh, one of their reporters, Jeremy Lafredo, was sent to Russia to cover the war in Ukraine. And this happened in December, so it's like, it just happened. But the weird thing, it's even like there's nothing really to dig into. A part of it that's annoying is that Jeremy worked for Russia Today prior to working for Rebel News. And in all of Ezra's coverage of Jeremy Lafredo going to Russia, they never bring this up. And you would think, <laughs> you would think that like you're sending your one reporter to Russia, who used to work for a state, Russian state-sponsored media, that might be relevant to the coverage of that story. But so far, all that, like, Lafredo has reported back has been things like, how do I put that? Like, trying to, like, debunk Western narratives about what's happening in Russia. So they were trying to say, like, have sanctions hurt Russia? And so then Jeremy Lofredo would go into like a Russian grocery store and go, oh, look, food prices are normal. And that would be like his coverage. And sure. (laughs) I mean, part of it is like it's hard for me to like fact check that. There's not a ton of like uh, at least information sources that I could find that uh assess the question of of whether like Russia's being impacted in terms of the sanctions uh when it comes to food for everyday Russians but like it also is like that that could be skewed if you're in like cuz he was in a major city grocery store is there other parts of the country where they would be affected more by it like i don't know maybe you're telling me that the country that produces oil and agriculture yeah. stuff <laughs> is doing fine on like food production whoa like they they're a food exporter that's their whole thing because they grow so much food (laughs) yeah but such sanctions you know 
uh, I, like I don't know, but like part of the the other weird thing is because like that should be the story of like let's go talk to Russians, let's do this stuff, and of course they do like the man on the street interview style with like Russians to get their opinions on the war and stuff like this, but like most of Ezra's coverage of it has all been like how dangerous it is that you're going to Russia and like how we need to be super like. Make sure that, like, the KGB doesn't, like, get you or something. And, like... That'd be so funny. <laughs> well, part of it is, like, of, like he used to work for a state-sponsored uh, media apparatus. So, like, I feel like the Russians probably were already cool with him coming. Or, like, y- you know? But then the other part of it is, like, that almost in a weird way paints Russia in a negative light. Like, I feel like Ezra is, like, using that to, like drum up donations or like to add some sort of suspense to Jeremy Lafredo going to Russia. But like most of their story is a bit about how like Russia's fine because like, of course that's the narrative they want to tell. But like, why then would you sell it as like Jeremy Lafredo is in danger? (laughs) It's a dangerous mission. We've sent Lafredo on as he goes to Russia. I mean, I wonder if it's just like tensions between, you know, yeah, I mean... Worker and the boss. Like, Jeremy wants to cover things <laughs> his way, and Ezra's like, no. Rush is so scary, though. I think there is a tension there, at least not an important one. But you could tell that even when they did, like, an interview episode before Jeremy went to Russia. And Ezra was, like, focused on, like, how dangerous it was. And Lafredo was uh, more focused on, I want to, like, understand what Russians themselves think and, like, those kind of questions. And he did not seem worried about this assignment whatsoever uh, in how Ezra was selling it. And, uh, of course, Ezra continuously says that he hates Putin and wrote about how bad Putin was in his ethical oil thing. So I feel like he constantly has to play that line about how bad Putin is, even though he also wants to not alienate the right-wing base that seems to side with Russia in this conflict. So it's a weird game that, or balancing game that Ezra is trying to play here. And that, and like, you know, Ezra has to continue the grift, so he has to sell yeah. it as like... <laughs> risky so that they can fundraise off of it because otherwise it's just like oh yeah he went to russia um yeah i guess he said some stuff about what's going on there yeah and it's uh it's just weird because they are like you can bicker over to what extent because like ezra is again suing a university professor uh over uh, allegedly this professor calling uh ezra a russian spy even though the professor never called Ezra a Russian spy. But it's like, I don't think Ezra is being like, or Jeremy Lafredo is being told by the Russian government to produce propaganda for Russia. But there mm-hmm. is a sense in which it's like, like a convergence. Like they're, they're aware that there's a, a portion of the population of the right wing that wants this kind of information and wants a particular type of story told. And that just happens to be a story that aligns with Russian interests. So it's like, yes, they're producing Russian propaganda, but it doesn't even have to come from Russia, which is like why they get to play this game. Like, Oh, the, the liberals are just calling everyone like 
Russian, like paid Russian agents. And it's like, that's not the story here. The story is that you feel the need to go there and produce Russian propaganda, even though you're not directly being told to do so by the Russian government, you know? Yeah. But yes, that was his, his uh, the fifth story, the, the top five of 2022. And I, I do think that about covers most of it you know other than maybe the bug story i think you are right that was a pretty prevalent story even though it, it kind of ended with a whimper once the david menzies got to interview the bug farmer <laughs> and yeah. find out that it wasn't as scary as uh, he had expected i'm trying to think of like anything else really significant that they did last year because they must have, must have done something. I mean, they could have mentioned the Airbnb at the uh, <laughs> the Emergency Act inquiry. They did talk a lot about that. Mm. But yeah, I can't even, uh, off the top of my head, think of anything too, too, too exciting. More yeah. COVID conspiracy shit, but even then. That kind of fits in with the WHO uh, story, so. But that's it. That was that was the year in review segment. And, and the, you know typical i hope i hope now that the emergency acting career is over and all that that 2023 will be the year of no convoy stories is my uh hope but i'm still sure that i will have to listen to alexa being shot with a rubber bullet like 24 times at least <laughs> in 2023 it's probably gonna happen so we move on to january 3rd and as i said ezra is out for the entire week so David Menzies will be guest hosting on the third. And he begins by talking about, I don't know if you heard about this, but I guess Aaron O'Toole wrote an essay. Again, Aaron O'Toole is the last conservative leader who lost against uh, Justin Trudeau during the last election. And he wrote an essay saying that conservatives need to stop flying those uh, fuck Trudeau flags. And the right wing, like the far right of the party has like, you know, come out to criticize Aaron O'Toole for penning this essay, being like, we like our fuck Trudeau flags. And if if Trudeau doesn't want us to be so divisive, he shouldn't be divisive. And they get mad at it. And like, I, I don't care about this discourse. <laughs> I don't care about O'Toole. I don't care that. They're mad at O'Toole, like, whatever. I'm somewhat, like, at least, like, okay, at least, you know, the Red Tories are still kind of, like, pretending they're there. Um, <laughs> you know, like, might as well try to fracture the Conservatives as much as possible. Thank you, O'Toole. Um, but yeah, it is very, like, Okay. I even saw, I didn't look into it, but I even heard that, like, Pierre, like, had a, a not, like, a, a message of support for Aaron O'Toole, but sort of, like, echoed similar ideas that the, the F. Trudeau flags are great, but was more like, oh, but the problem is Trudeau kind of thing, like, and so on that end, like, it's weird because they make this division where it's like, I don't even think that O'Toole is that much a red Torius they like to paint him out to be. It's one of these things where it's like, you even see this with uh, the struggle over the Speaker of the House in America recently, where you had these two Republican factions, uh, and one of them, you know, the 
what we deem as the more like far right fringe seem to not want to support Kevin McCarthy uh, for Speaker of the House. Yet if you look at Kevin McCarthy's politics, he's just as on the fringe as they are. It's just a matter of like how uh, overtly on the fringe he is. <laughs> like they're all going to vote and do the same things. It's just like they're fighting over very symbolic and stupid things that uh, are not like materially important and it's the same thing with o'toole it's like the only difference between o'toole and pierre really is that like o'toole wants to have more civility and doesn't want people flying like fuck trudeau flags you know and pierre largely agrees with him but he just doesn't want to vocalize it for fear of hurting his base right which is not really a a, a difference it's it's a very insubstantial difference between the two of them now, I still think Pierre is worse on, like, other metrics, but, like, when it comes down to it, they're still both pretty bad. I didn't realize O'Toole had only been elected in 2015. Like, he's a much more recent political figure. He's only 49 years old. 49 years young. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> if you can say that when you look at O'Toole. Yeah, sorry, I got distracted looking him up just to see, like, if he had been in politics long enough to be aligned with, like, either the Harperites or the, like, PCs. Um, but he hasn't been, because he's only been in politics for, like, eight years. Is that, like, elected as a politician? Because I feel like he was involved behind the scenes in some respects. I can't remember. Um, it's been a while since I've had to, like, look into O'Toole. Oh, wait, no, sorry, it was 2012. Because um, I feel like he was involved in municipal politics, but I could be wrong. Uh, it's just, it's been a while since I've had to look into O'Toole. But I know, I remember when he was uh, an issue, like, running for leadership, the Rebel News was criticizing him because he had, like, a red Tory past. So that was, like, yeah, I don't know. Either way. So we get to the interview segment, and David Menzies decides to interview someone known as Billboard Chris, and we've talked about him before. He's this guy who's been to, like, if there's a protest against trans people, Chris will show up with, uh, he wears, like, what is it, a sandwich board where, like, it goes over top of him and it's got both sides, and on one one of the, the sandwich boards, it has, like, the definition of, like, man on it, and, like... And he just shows up to, like, a drag queen story time event walking around with this, like, sandwich board. And that's kind of what he's mostly known for. He got yelled out of a, I guess he came to protest a high school in Ottawa, I think. And the students just, like, yelled at him until he left uh, sad and dejected. So that was fun. He's also, uh, there was a funny article that I found when I was initially researching him, which was that even TERFs, the trans-exclusionary radical feminists who uh, are basically just conservatives, but, like, they're, they're these... They like to have this, like, pretense of radical, femi radical feminism. And they even hate Chris. They, they tend to, like, even like people like Matt Walsh, even though Matt Walsh is a ultra-conservative Christian who doesn't believe women should have rights... <laughs> You know, but they'll support him. But they find Chris, this billboard Chris guy, so bad they won't associate with him. 
because he's creepy and uh, engages in behavior even towards them that they don't like. They find him very creepy. So it's funny yeah. that like even turfs don't like this guy. But David Menzies likes him, so... That's very unsurprising. <laughs> and... I mean, most of it is just a, a, a litany of some arguments against trans people that uh, I figured we could just go over briefly, but we don't need, necessarily need to play Chris's points made about them. But Menzies starts off the segment by claiming that Boston's Children's Hospital is performing vaginoplasty surgery on children. And I just want to say that they are, in fact, not performing the surgery on children. This is the main sort of talking point made by Chris and Menzies throughout this video. And it's sad that, like, I mean, most of the other stuff that have, like, a tinge of truth to them are also, is, like, also bullshit. But it's just amazing, like, that their be biggest fear-mongering point against Boston's Children's Hospital is just mm. not true. Simply not true. And yet it's the one thing that they keep promoting and is resulting in the fact of Boston's Children's Hospital receiving many, many bomb threats since uh, they've been harassing this hospital. Now, Menzies asks Chris why they would perform surgery on children instead of giving them therapy for what Menzies describes as mental illness. And Chris at least acknowledges that the purpose of giving people surgery or puberty blockers is to reduce dysphoria. So he at least acknowledges like wh like what is the claimed medical reason for doing this, but then claims that most children grow out of this gender confusion. And like even that is not true. Like that's the big talking point is that like somehow this stuff is all being pushed on the kids and mm -hmm. that like most of these kids are just going to get over it. They're going to grow up and realize like, oh, it was just a fad and I was just transing to be cool or <laughs> whatever they think it is right like what does it matter if it is is also the thing like to to play like what is it like devil's advocate i guess i i think like their argument and this is why they bring it back to the surgery always mm -hmm. which is that yeah. if you do something surgical like that that's irreversible then it becomes the problem now it becomes less a problem when you talk about puberty blockers because those are like uh, low uh, side effects and also very reversible. So yeah. those are almost become like a non-issue. So they have to make it about the surgery, but then it's like when you find out that they're not performing the surgery, mm -hmm. it's <laughs> right. And so it's like, then what is the point? Like what you raised is exactly the point, but like, that's why they have to make up a bunch of bullshit to, to continue the fear mongering, even though what they're saying is happening isn't really happening. Yeah. Like, it's so fucked up when you think it. And they have to be aware of it. Like, it's not like people haven't told them this, you know? Mm -hmm. And yet they keep saying it as if it is true. And and I think they get to, like, like I guess, like, blur some of the lines. Because the one surgery that can happen is a mastectomy, which is having the, the breasts removed. But that happens uh, only in, uh, I think, between ages 16 and 17, and only in very rare cases. Uh, otherwise, they're adults, and just like any adult having anything performed to them, they can have that performed to them if they want to, you know? But then there is the question of, like, I guess people changing their mind? And the evidence even there is just, like, 
they are so wrong about that. I think the evidence suggests that over 97% of trans people are happier mm. after transitioning and do not regret the transition. 97%. Now, in that 3% who detransition for some reason or another, the only reason that happens, or not the only reason, uh, the several reasons that are cited for why that happens usually has to do with uh, medical reasons. So there's something that, that prevents them from being able to do it medically. The other reason uh, is often financial. Uh, so the, the surgeries and then the costs of medication are very expensive in America, mm -hmm. and that might prohibit someone from doing it. And then the third is social. So like, you know, you have family members pressuring you not to do it. Now, there are also people who genuinely just, you know, find out that it, it wasn't right for them or whatever. But they are a very, very tiny percentage of that 3%. <laughs> you know uh yeah and that's fine i don't but i uh, you made a face because you've you've talked about this before on our show how uh mm -hmm. you were uh taking hormones i think at some point uh but like but i don't even think you would be included in that metric based on how they measure it like i, mm -hmm. I, I think it's like you have to be uh, i don't even know how it it gets calculated because like some people do start on like hormone and puberty blockers and then choose not to, but they're not counted as detransitioning uh, in the same way that I guess some people are who have already gone through the surgery or are taking like those kinds of steps. But, but either way, it's like, who, who cares? <laughs> you know? And that, yeah. And like, like one of the things that always gets brought up is like, you know, acceptance rates for like knee surgeries and like that kind of thing where it's like yeah you know it's only like 13 percent of people who are like happier after that kind of thing where it's you know the rates are so much higher for like trans people and then also like you know you don't get like a huge like oh no we need to stop doing knee surgeries yeah because so many people hate them it's like sometimes medical stuff just kind of sucks or you know people end up making you know deciding to do something and then they regret it that is part of human existence like it doesn't ultimately like matter what that individual like decides to do with their life afterwards because they're a human and sometimes you just do things and you know the results are mixed because people are different like it really is just a, like, ah, everybody must fit into these neat little boxes, and if they don't fit into these neat little boxes, then something is wrong with them, and yada, 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 yada. And it's like, no, actually. <laughs> the human experience is incredibly diverse. People do things for different reasons. People get, like, various forms of body modifications, whether that be, like, a medical surgery or a tattoo or, like, whatever... You know, what's the fucking acceptance rate acceptance rate on tattoos like 20, 30 years down the line? <laughs> and the thing and how is... How many people have regret? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's like... I mean, I'm sure those people would love to ban tattoos as well. So, it, you know. But it's like, yeah. People experience different things and sometimes they regret the things that they did. And then they, like, continue on living anyways 
or not as is their choice like i mean this is the the problem with trying to calculate like harms here as well because it's like mm -hmm. i think i've heard like matt walsh say something like even one child being like harmed by this stuff means like we shouldn't do it or something like this and it's like but then th that excludes all the people who who would get harmed if we didn't have these procedures in place so it's like when you have 97 percent of uh people who transition are are score higher in their happiness uh from before they transition shouldn't that like be good like those are people who uh might not commit suicide or you know uh, because they feel better about themselves and shouldn't that be introduced into the, into the calculation you know so it's like it's one of these things where it's like they'll focus on the thing that shows a harm over here but it's like if we were actually to, to do some sort of like you know and if it, it, it always feels weird talking this way about human beings but some sort of like objective calculus of like the harm reduced here it clearly is not on their side you know yeah and and like it, it sucks but sometimes when you deal with health uh issues there's always going to be a sort of trade-off like this i mean it's the same thing with we've had this like throughout the entire pandemic about vaccines and the safety of vaccines and it's like let's say one in a million people died of this vaccine that's going to be so many fewer people that die when you compare to it to the amount of unvaccinated people who die from the disease and yet it's like it's almost like people think that because it just happens to you, you die of a disease that you somehow get, that that's a better death <laughs> or a more acceptable death than, like, the very few people who might die because of the medical intervention in, in trying to fight this disease, you know? Mm -hmm. But it's like we have to make these kinds of trade-offs, you know? That's, that's the nature of life, you know? <laughs> and then you figure out which one caused the least suffering and you try uh, to implement that, you know? Yeah. No, it, it really is just like, make things as good as possible for as many people as possible. That's it. End of. And that doesn't like forego any complaints that you can have about the system in any way. Because like, the next point, I mean, they go into this whole like conspiracy theory that like, big pharma is making money off of all the trans surgery and pharmaceuticals they give trans people. And like, there is a smidgen of truth to that, given the nature of pharmaceutical companies and the fact that trans people can become lifelong patients and needing hormone therapies, uh, etc. But it's like, yeah, okay, there's a problem with profiteering in the healthcare industry. That doesn't mean <laughs> that, like, that we shouldn't, like, their conspiracy is that, like, you know, the big pharma execs are sitting around a table and be like, haha, let's make more trans people so we can make more money. <laughs> when really it's just like, they're making the things that help people, but then like, making it costly to them, you know, mm -hmm. and putting them in the position where they have to decide, uh, can I fa financially afford improving my mental health, you know? Yeah. But it's like we could have a real discussion about pharmaceutical companies. I would love to have a real one. But it's always when it comes to the right wing, it's always in some sort of like made up land where like, you know, there's a conspiracy afoot where it's like, no, it's just, you know, I don't doubt that a lot of their medical treatments do end up working. It's just like there's other features involved uh, that could cause corruption and, you know, 
I mean, I mean, there's also times when they can fuck with shit, but like, uh, and we're learning a lot of that when it comes to the opiate crisis, for example. But that isn't all medicine, you know. <laughs> Thankfully, we have independent science to back up a lot of treatments that do work. So that's good. Mm-hmm. They do end the show with this, and. Uh, there's got to be a lot of like weird extreme claims uh, made, not just in this episode, but in, in another episode. But I just, I can't, sometimes they say things and it just blows my mind. So here's here's how David Menzies and Chris end their uh, interview together. Chris, I think you're doing great work speaking out against this kind of, uh, I don't know what to call it. I don't call it gender reassignment surgery. I call it, you know, a, uh, a form of manipulation, um, maybe desecration of a child's body. And the fact that they can't wait for this child to reach the benchmark of being an adult. We have benchmarks for everything from smoking, liquor, buying lottery tickets, voting, you name it. But this has to be rushed for some sort of reason. Uh, I'm not buying it. I think it's disgraceful. And uh, good luck to you in getting the word out. Maybe after the Boston protest is over, we can have you back on this show. Last word goes to you, Chris. Uh, Thank you, David. This is the greatest child abuse scandal in modern medicine history. And 100 and 200 years from now, people will look back at this time. And during this era, they will be talking about what's going on in this arena of child transition, because this is the craziest thing we've ever seen. The worst in modern and then he th- abuse to children in modern and then he adds medical history because I'm like <laughs> there's I think there's more people abused by the Catholic Church than there are trans people in America even if you're just looking at America I think there's more children who are abused by the Catholic Church than there are children who are trans which is insane if you think about it and that's just the Catholic Church not the yeah. <laughs> not all the Protestant ones yeah. Exactly. Uh, so that that's one thing. But if you add in medical, like in modern history, like uh, the the infant formula stuff, like or like there's so many that you can point to where children were directly harmed by uh, medical misinformation, uh, among other things. You know, it's and like then, then if you put it to scope, like okay, if this is like as big as he's saying it is, how many? Like for one. Again, they're talking about the surgeries and they're not happening, okay? Mm. But even if you were to say like like puberty blockers, for example, let's just look at numbers just for context. In 2021, in America, only 1,390 people aged 6 to 17 were treated with puberty blockers. 1,390 children were treated with puberty blockers in 2021. Think about how small that number is. Now, yep. 4,231 uh, children between ages 16 to 17 started some form of hormone treatment. And out of all 6 to 17-year-olds, six to and again, this category will be more 16 to 17, there was only 282 mastectomies on children. So if you want to actually talk about surgeries, in 2021, 282 children had some sort of uh, 
surgery regarding mastectomies. Do you know if all of these are in the context of like, like trans healthcare or? The study was that I was looking at was in regards to trans healthcare. Okay. So, so, but I, I don't want to like put my foot, like they could qualify yeah. that somewhere that I, I didn't notice, but even either way, 282 is such a small number. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, but it it's kind of a like, I bet there were a lot more mastectomies for other purposes. I bet there were like a lot more people on hormone therapies for other purposes, like, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Um, yeah, just like, you know, one high school's worth of people. Yeah. Across the across a country of for what, like four hundred million? Yeah. It's like it's it's amazing. There was, I can't remember what state it was, but you had one state official who was a Republican, who vetoed against uh, an anti-trans bill that had to do with uh, trans women in sports, all because mm. this involved one child in their entire state who wanted to be on a, a women's team. And it's like, yeah, when you get to numbers that small, why is this the focus of our legislation, legislative priorities, you know? Yeah. It's fucked up. <laughs> it's what it is. And like, again, how many episodes, especially uh, in the last few months, has Rebel News dedicated to this topic? Mm-hmm. And published a book on this topic. And like. It's just it's it's. Uh, disgusting. And it continues. So we get to January 4th. And uh, you know. David Menzies is not done with his. Uh, anti-trans stories. And this one is like. Weird. I don't even know why he wants. Like you will get to like the narrative he wants to craft about it. But again it's. Not correct. Uh, And this involves someone named Amber McLaughlin, who was the first openly trans woman that was executed by the state of Missouri. So this is someone who committed a crime, and it was a violent murder. So no defense of Amber McLaughlin. I'm pretty sure that... uh, there was no, uh, I guess, mystery. or <laughs> It's pretty clear that they committed this crime. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't think that is in question here. But Menzies is going... I guess Menzies' main sort of like theme here, and we'll, we'll get into it in more detail, is that the left wanted to commute her sentence, her sentence being the death penalty. Like So commute that aspect, but still have life in prison. All because she was trans. Now, we will assess the validity of that in a second. But that is the main reason why Menzies wants to talk about this story. Now, I do want to highlight up front, and it's going to have... I feel like I have to highlight that now. Because in the next clip we're going to play, it's going to be evident. But he seems extra vulgar when talking about Amber in this case. And I feel like part of the reason is, is because... Because Amber is someone who committed a violent crime, whatever 
little tiny respect that Menzies has in regards to like talking about trans people, that could just go right out the window because this is like a violent murder, right? Uh, so just warning in how David uh, talks about this person. Now there's more clips of how vulgar he talks about her that I just didn't include because there's no point on, I guess, uh, going over the point. But uh, mm. because it's evident in the clip, I am going to play. I, I figure I would just say that. And, and of course, like there's going to be dead naming and misgendering and all that. The tons of fun stuff that we could expect from a, a David Menzies segment. But here is David explaining why he wants to talk about this story. So we can lay out what his sort of like weird narrative is in regard to uh, Amber. I am delighted to report that at around 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time last night, a certain procedure was embraced, which now allows us to refer to Amber in the past tense. That's because this monster who was serving time in a Missouri jail for first-degree murder, was sent to the great hereafter via lethal injection, good riddance. Not that there wasn't a vigorous fight by the progressive left to save this chick with a dick. By the way, Amber McLaughlin's real name is Scott McLaughlin. That's because when he was born about a half century ago, nobody in their right mind would have dreamed of naming a bouncing baby boy as Amber. Again, don't you notice there's like a hint of like... Holy shit. Yeah, he's like really just letting it go. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, I don't know. I listen to a lot of it and it's all bad. You know what I mean? But it's like, even you, you can sense it, right? Like, he's just like all in on the transphobia. Like to a... Just, he's like, nope, I'm not going to hold it. You need back to stop bit. using these words that are like a hint. <laughs> oh, you can sense it? Well, it's no, just the like hint, the the reason why I'm using hint is not because it's like subtle. It well, the subtlety is not in the transphobia. The subtlety is between his normal state of transphobia and this heightened degree, you know, which I don't think is as big a jump. But it's like there's still I notice it because I listen to David Menzies all the time. But I, <laughs> okay. that's what I'm trying to get at. Sure, sure. <laughs> um. That and just, like, the absolute excitement about someone being put to death. Oh, yeah. Like, just, my God. No, it's uh, it's horrifying. Uh, and we will we'll get to more clips regarding that uh, in a bit. But, yeah, the, the, Menzies, you know, this person deserves being executed. That's how they feel. In... Uh, it's weird because they want he wants to play this game of painting the left as arguing for uh, clemency because she is trans. But that is like any of the reporting that I looked into, that was not at all what the left was saying. So like so he begins to read this like Guardian article that's talking about this story and like he first hones in on the fact that, like, I guess other inmates refer to Amber positively, talking about how uh, she would tell dad jokes and they thought she was a, a wonderful person. Hmm. And I guess, like, he's mad at this end of the reporting, but if you're seeking clemency, you're trying to paint this person 
in a good light. And again, like, all they're arguing for is for Amber not to be murdered, right? It's not to say that, like, what she did was fine, that the, you know, the violent murders that she committed were of no a concern, you know? <laughs> they still think that she should be in, in prison. They just don't want her to be given the death penalty. Part, part of the reason why they want the clemency is because during the sentencing portion of her trial, they the judge refused to have like her mental health history brought up in the, the sentencing hearing. Mm-hmm. And part of that has to do with like the kind of abuse that she suffered as a child. Now, as far as I could tell, she didn't transition uh, until she was in prison. That doesn't mean that, like, I can't tell you why her parents were abusive to her or whether that had to do with some sort of, like, gendered reasons. But, like, the way it's described, it seemed like her parents were just neglectful and abusive regardless. Like, they were doing things to her that were just downright fucking disgusting. And so part of the reason of bringing this up in the sentencing hearing would be to say, look, what she did was terrible, but it comes from this history which she had no control over, and it created her to be this kind of terrible person, and so maybe we shouldn't just kill this person. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, According to them, I might have a different opinion of how, like, the prison system should work or whatever. But, like, they're saying at least we should not kill this person. She should just remain in prison, right? Which, fair. And, and, like, here's the thing is, he's going to be talking about progressives who are going to defend her. And, of course, most progressives don't want the death penalty. So (laughs) they're probably going to defend even the most heinous criminal uh, and say that, yes, this person should not be put to death. But here's yeah. how uh, David Menzies sort of like, he's, again, he's going to start, he's reading uh, the Guardian article talking about this. Two Missouri members of Congress, Democrats Cory Bush and Emanuel Cleaver, had been campaigning for McLaughlin's sentence to be commuted and last week wrote to Governor Mike Parson urging him to scrap the execution. They noted that McLaughlin, 49, was given the death sentence when the judge in the case made a unilateral decision after the jury deadlocked on her fate. The members of Congress complained about alleged shortcomings in her trial, including failure to include expert testimony and evidence on the defendant's mental health, end quote. By the way, that's a whopper of a line there, isn't it? That line about McLaughlin's mental health. Isn't that interesting? I mean, There is indeed a body of evidence indicating that a disproportionate number of trans individuals suffer from various mental health issues, ranging from autism to Asperger's syndrome. But to mention this research in certain circles, one shall be deemed to be a hater and or a transphobe. Yet when an allegedly trans individual is on death row fighting for his or her life, suddenly those members of the loving left unapologetically play the mental illness card. Gee, talk about desperation. Talk about hypocrisy. Talk about chutzpah. I don't even understand what the hypocrisy is here. Like, 
it's not like they're bringing up mental health here in relation to, say, gender dysphoria in order to commute the sentence, because they're not. What they're talking about is the mental health from the result of parental abuse that she grew up yeah. with. Um, I also really love the range of autism to um, also autism just named after a Nazi um, in the, like, in David Menzies, like, aut- mental health issues from autism to Asperger's. Like, that's one mental, that's one thing. That is one condition. Like, <laughs> I didn't realize, too, that, like, trans was a part of the autism spectrum now as well. So. <laughs> I just, I like, it's, I mean, a lot of mental health issues are comorbid. That's fine. Like, there's tons of trans autistic people, and we love them. It's just like, again, like, what is that? That would have nothing to do uh, on whether or not uh, she should be commuted, which is why it was never brought up, you know? But he wants to bring it up. And he, he thinks, again, it's, like, so weird because no one is canceling people or calling people transphobic for acknowledging certain mental health issues surrounding uh, transness or or gender identity issues, right? Because, of course, that can affect your mental health. The issue is, like, whether or not it is a quote-unquote mental illness to be trans. Because Mm -hmm. there's tons of trans people who feel trans, but it doesn't affect their mental health in any way. So is it an illness? Because... They have supporting family. They exist in a supporting society. Transition and feel good about the way that they fit into society. No, it's not an illness. They're, you know, they fit in and they feel happy with where they are. You know, the illness comes from the fact of like, it's causing you mental anguish in some ways. And usually those reasons are societal in in some respects, you know? Yeah. It's just, like, it's transphobic when you focus on, like, transness as a mental illness. But it's, like, they, they can't, can't understand that point whatsoever. It's weird, too, because, like, a lot of mental illnesses work this way and people don't understand that. Which is, like, you know, someone could have ADHD and their life can be fine and they can be non-medicated. And by fine, I just means they, they've managed to hold a job, uh, have happy, healthy relationships, and are just fine. Uh, the reason why we usually call things mental illness is when they have, like, negative effects on people. Where, like, your ADHD is, like, preventing you from uh, maintaining a job or uh, causing your relationships to fail in various respects. Uh and, and therefore, people are in some sort of state of anguish and therefore seek help to ameliorate it. And, like, that doesn't mean that, like, like it's, like, weird to conceptualize it that way. But, like, largely, and, and it's not to say that, like, the ADHD is, like, societally caused. But that, like, because you had ADHD, it causes you societal problems. And maybe, like, one of the solutions to that could be, like, make societal, society more amenable to uh, people with... Uh, certain mental health issues but like Mm -hmm. it's just so weird like this old way of thinking about mental health as if like that person is like ill when it's like mental health is like both something internally to you but also your relationship to the society and how it deals with uh your ability you know 
And that's always left yeah. out of like their discussions. They always make it an individual issue. You are a bad person. You have the mental illness. You, right? Yeah, like it, it's a slightly updated version of the like, haha, you see a psychiatrist. Haha, yeah. you, you go to therapy type of view that was like the like early 2000s type of approach. Like it's just the level of depth of understanding hasn't changed at all. They've just learned a few new words. It's weird to me because like this is a very societally prevalent idea as well even though it's you know i think if you look at society now compared to the past even like my parents or like people i knew who grew up in the 90s like more gen xers as well like even they have like a skewed idea of like mental health to a certain degree but even though like we've we've made some progress in societal awareness of mental state mental health stigma and stuff like this People still, like, confuse this idea, even though it's weird because, like, when I went to university for psychology, that was, like, drummed into us in, like, you know, the first two years of psychology school was, like, met, like mental health is not like you are ill. It's both. It's a biosocial phenomenon. Mm. It's not it's not just a bio phenomenon. And yet. I don't know. It's just weird that that gets left out of it, even though, like, we are appropriately being educated on it, <laughs> you know? But, like, of course, not everyone is going to school for psychology, but still. I mean, it's also, like, acknowledging that something is social means that society has to change, and nobody is interested in that. Um, like, it's why, you know, they're like, oh, serotonin deficiency, yada yada, is, like, what people blamed depression on for so long and it's like no actually sometimes just like things are bad you know and now like in the uk there's that thing where doctors will be like oh you have shit life syndrome and it's just like you know it's still like medicalizing a like social phenomena because people are poor and miserable or you know grew up on a dying world and don't like that and it's been a while since I've looked up the SSRI research, and I know like there's a whole bunch of issues going on there that we're not going to get into in today's episode. But like, yeah, the one thing that I will point out about it though that's like interesting. It's like even if you were to say like serotonin is related to mental health in some capacity, and like you know lower levels of it uh, correlate with depression or whatever. It's still, it's like, well, what's causing you to have low serotonin levels? And it's like, maybe cause mm. work fucking sucks, you know? And it's like, you could medicate that, which is like fine in our current society. If it's like death or medication, you're probably going to go with the medication, but maybe we should fix the, the work being shitty, you know, as well. But like that of course is never, uh, discussed. And and as you said, it's because there's no will to do it. And I think the will comes from the people in power who have no interest to do anything about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Because no, exactly. they've benefited from the system. So they're like, I don't want to fix this. But it's like, yeah, no, there's tons of reasons why mental health uh, is affected. Largely has to do with our societal situations, obviously, you know. <laughs> uh, even though, of course, there is going to be, because we're biological creatures, of course there is going to be some sort of biological process uh, involved in it. Mm -hmm. 
it's just weird. Like, as you said, it's a way, it, it's a form of stigmatization. It's to be like, you are mentally ill. It's something with you. And that's how they want to weaponize it, you know. And it's a means of, like, passing it off. Because if it's the individual's fault and responsibility, it's on the individual to deal with it. Versus, like, if it's a societal problem, then it's on everybody to change how things work. Yeah, because then that's... David Menzies would have to stop doing his transphobic segments and whipping up his transphobia in his audience, you know. Yeah, or the government would, like, have to actually, like, do anything about the state of the world. Yep. Yep. And that's not going to happen. <laughs> so then, Oh, it's not. <laughs> so then... This is where things get really weird, okay? We then transition to Menzies talking about Jordan Peterson. And at first I'm like, why is David Menzies talking about this? And what he's talking about is, uh, if anyone's been on social media lately, you've probably heard about this, but Jordan Peterson has been mandated by the College of Psychologists of Ontario to undergo a coaching program because of his uh, social media presence being not great. One for, for an example of some of the things that he's done is he basically told someone to in not so subtle ways to kill themselves, and that's unbecoming of a psychologist, one might say. So he has been told to undergo this coaching program, and of course he went to social media to complain that this is the woke college, uh, trying to force him to pro trudeau or something of course that is not the case it is more to do with these uh more severe uh severe stuff like telling people to kill themselves and of course he then uh published the complaint on his social media and did not uh i guess like blur out or remove the names of some of the people who made the complaints and just blasted that to his audience who are now going to harass these people so he eventually deleted the tweet, but of course the the harm was already done. So just to add to the, like the shitty things that Jordan Peterson does. But of course David Menzies wants to bring this up. He he never mentions any of the other like the reasons or any of the things that I just brought up. He just mentions that like Jordan Peterson is being uh, persecuted by the uh, uh, the college for for wrong think etc. You know, uh, but then I'm like, what does this have to do with Amber McLaughlin? Like, how did we get from Amber McLaughlin? To Jordan Peterson. And this is how he brings it around. And it is simultaneously just mind mind blowing, but then also just sad and depressing. So here it goes. Here's how he, he connects these two issues. There you have it, folks. A first degree murderer is supposedly deserving of our compassion and our forgiveness because the killer took to donning a wig and earrings and splashing some garish makeup on his face, thereby morphing into a transgendered person in the process. And besides, he was shy and, you know, he loved the crack dad jokes. Meanwhile, someone such as Dr. Jordan Peterson, a man blessed with a brilliant mind and someone who does not bend the knee to society's rancid cancel culture mobsters, he is being called upon the carpet by some quacks populating a star chamber in order to justify his so-called wrong thoughts as though we are currently living in some real-life Orwellian nightmare? Give me a break. 
In the final analysis, the year 2023 is barely 96 hours old, and it would appear that planet Earth is still continuing to self-identify as clown world. Can you imagine making this comparison in real life? I love that he called them quacks. <laughs> he called the people that regulate all psychiatrists in Ontario, is it? Psychologists, but yeah. Psychologists. Of which Jordan Peter is one. Yep. For now. Like, just, you know, all of them are quacks. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's that's a way to approach mental health, bud. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't by, by virtue of that, because Jordan Peterson is a part of the... Uh, yeah. The body. Uh, <laughs> is he not a quack? <laughs> no, exactly. They're all quacks. It's... Yeah, it's just absurd. But, like, imagine that Jordan Peterson was told that for telling someone to go kill themselves, one one of the things being that he told someone to go kill themselves, that he was offered mandatory coaching for social media. That is comparable. Or, or the fact... The problem that, that Menzies is, is elucidating here is that we're not supposed to have compassion for Jordan Peterson going through this just terrible thing. And yet, God forbid, we're being told to have compassion for someone who is now dead. Yeah. As if these things are fucking comparable at all, or at the same level or degree of severity here, okay? Yeah, man has to undergo job training versus... Woman gets executed by the state. Wow. Just, yeah. <laughs> just fucking, the, I couldn't believe. I was like, you're, you're going here. You're making this comparison. Great, great job, Menzies. There's almost like oh. nothing to say to that. It's just, it's so, so it, I mean, like, of course, th this would be the comparison because they're super fucking transphobic. It's just, uh. What bizarre world we live in. Mm -hmm. You know, not to borrow the, the fascist clown world phrasing, but like it's clown world, but not in the way that David Menzies thinks that it's clown world, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. So, Ugh. unless you have any final thoughts. but <laughs> I got nothing. So Menzies ends the show by interviewing uh, the pizza cult guy. Do you remember this guy? It was no. like an Alberta pizza joint that had like their their pizza logo oh. was like a cross and like yeah uh, yeah uh, they say nothing new apparently like so they shut down his pizza parlor without papers pizza or whatever during the COVID pandemic the the beginning stages of the COVID pandemic and his pizza parlor is still shut down but I guess now he's like I'm gonna sue everyone or something I don't know so David Menzies talks to him but I I don't care. I, I don't care. And the reason why we call it a cult is not just because the pizza logo looks like a cross. They were interviewing, like, employees that just, it sounded, we, we covered this on a a, uh, a live stream that we did a while back, and the employees just sounded weird. And, like, all their families were employed at the, <laughs> the pizza place, too. It was just super, super weird. And every speech that this guy gave sounded like it was, like, a... Like he was preaching. It was very weird. Mm -hmm. 
So was the pizza cult. But uh, they say nothing that's worth going over. So the next two episodes are both Sheila Gunn-Reed episodes. And we'll go through them really quickly because I find Sheila Gunn-Reed to be very boring. And they also don't say much. So the first episode on the fifth, uh, she wants to talk about, I guess, Trudeau and the NDP going forward into 2023. And she claims that Trudeau was going to get more radical in 2023 to appeal to the NDP. And like, I don't, it's hard for me to analyze the way they talk about the NDP and the liberals because it's so on another plane of just absurd that like, I, I, I don't know. I, and like, there's no truth to this. I like, it's weird because she simultaneously thinks that the NDP is weak, which I agree to a certain extent, but like also thinks that they're somehow like manipulating the liberals or something. Mm -hmm. So... I, I, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's the best I got there. She then interviews Ian Miles Chong about... Oh, uh, forgot about him. Yeah, about the Twitter files, which was a, a story that happened. Did you ever hear about this stuff, you know? Yeah, no, I heard about it. It, was, it sounded boring. Um, it is boring and a complete nothing burger. The, I guess the... And of course, they're talking to Ian Miles Chong about the Twitter stuff because Ian Miles Chong is friends with uh, Elon Musk on Twitter. So, therefore, he's got to be the guy who talks about Twitter now. But, <laughs> uh, but I guess like the main focus that they have in this episode about the Twitter stuff is the relationship between Twitter and the U.S. government regarding the like Russian uh, bots and stuff like this. Yeah. And they keep talking about it. But most of the stuff that they're talking about occurred between, like, 2016 and, like, 2018. And they keep talking about how bad it is that the government was doing this. But they never, like, stopped to think, like, that was the, the Trump administration that was doing <laughs> that was doing this, right? That never mm -hmm. comes up in any of their analysis. And... Uh, much like all of this Twitter files garbage, they keep making it out to seem like, oh, big, bad Biden government. Yet it seems like the Biden government, the worst they've done was like, maybe don't post nudes of my son on Twitter. And that was before he was the president. Yeah. Which, you know, don't don't post revenge porn pics of anybody. Sounds like uh, regardless of how criminal or non-criminal they are, don't post revenge porn pics on the Internet. Sounds a pretty, pretty easy solution to that one. Yeah, we need to let Hunter post them himself. Are you simping after Biden? Is that what this is? No, I just think it would be very funny. Uh, sure. I, yeah. I just the Twitter files thing is so boring and stupid, and uh, I'm I'm glad this is the extent of the coverage, and I hope I, we never have to hear about it again. Is pretty much how I feel about it, because like I don't even know how much traction it's going to get on the the right wing. It seems like they really wanted to focus on it, but like it hasn't blown up as much as it did initially. And then when people found out there was really nothing there, it kind of has like tapered off quite a bit. So yeah. So hopefully it remains that way. Uh, but then we get into the mailbag segment, and I've got one last clip to play, which is Sheila responding to audience letters 
about the Amber McLaughlin case that David Menzies was talking about. And of course, there's, you know, the regular transphobia. But we were talking earlier about how Menzies talked about the death penalty. Uh, just listen to how Sheila talks about it, just to get a sense of how, uh, you know, Rebel News feels about people having, being murdered by the state. Lousy fives writes, Yep, I think anyone who premeditates a murder of any kind should be executed. It's not that anyone wants him executed because he's transgender. It's the left that doesn't want him executed because he is a transgender. I don't care who you are or what you identify as. You commit a premeditated murder in a state with a death penalty, you get exactly what you deserve. Justice be done. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't think I could have said it any better than Lousy 7. I don't care how your hair was done when you went into the death chamber. I don't care what was surgically attached to your chest or otherwise altered on your body. I don't care about the hormones surging through your body, whether they were estrogen or testosterone, synthetic or natural. I mostly only care that your body was teeming with adrenaline because of the fear you felt as you were being executed for the crimes that you did commit. So I will add that she says she doesn't care about the hormones coursing through your body, but then lists a hormone that she does care about. So I just, <laughs> adrenaline is in fact a hormone. Uh, <laughs> but that—that uh, that is a weird way to talk about someone being uh, a murdered. Hmm. Which tells you a little something about both uh, David Menzies and Sheila and the rest of the right wing, which is that they really have a bloodlust. They do. <sighs> like, they want to point to the left being like, the left is compassionate. <laughs> it's like, oh, mm -hmm. oh, no. Meanwhile, they're like, I can't wait till the adrenaline is coursing through my enemy's veins as I murder them. It's like, okay, cool. Cool story. Yeah. Like, they can't imagine that this is a, like, stance against the death penalty either. Like, that part just cannot cross their mind. It's weird, too, because even the audience picked up uh, this sort of, like, narrative that Menzies was telling, which was that the left wanted clemency because this person was trans, even though, as I've said already, this had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that she was trans. Mm -hmm. it had to do with the fact deal with the fact that the you know the criminal justice system is fucked up and they didn't allow certain evidence during the sentence hearing and that is wrong and they murdered this person anyways now that does again it does not take away from the real crimes that she very likely committed it just means that Maybe the death penalty isn't great, and maybe there's lots of people who are against the death penalty. Again, in the same way that, that Sheila just says it now, regardless of like what their genitals are or how they stereotypically present themselves, doesn't matter. Maybe we shouldn't have the death penalty, you know? Yeah. But uh, there you have it. The, the final day, the sixth, uh, there's nothing. To, they, they're talking about the gun ban stuff, and... I, I don't know what you feel about Trudeau's, like, gun ban stuff, because, like, I personally, I have I have no stake in this whatsoever. So I, I just don't. I'm sorry if anyone listening is just like, Trudeau's coming for my guns. 
I agree with Sheila Gunn Reed. <laughs> I just, I, honestly, I don't think that there's a lot of guns circulating in our system that we need a build like this necessarily. But then on the flip side, I don't really care if he is taking these guns away. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't know if you have thoughts. <laughs> Did he correct it away from, like, banning the hunting rifles and whatever? It had... I think that some of the stipulation had to do with, like, AR-like, and part of the issue is that it's not clear what AR-like means. Yeah. But it's, like... I, I don't know. I guess, like, part of the issue is, like, certain hunt or certain, like, farmers need it in terms of, like shooting coyotes that are killing farm animals or something like that seems to be the like the big issue that like Sheila's raising but then it's like the real issue is people up north who don't have access to food who need to hunt to survive like yeah but like and and then that's, that's the thing is like it's not clear what like and and this is part of the issue i think that you could go after trudeau for is it's not clear to what extent this legislation is going to like uh prevent people up north from getting those weapons right but like mm-hmm. sheila barely touches on that she's she more is more focused on the farmer fighting coyotes uh and also she i think at one point she mentions like we can't have fun shooting guns anymore <laughs> like, like it's like just that shooting guns is fun i'm sheila See, I'm, gun reed so i'm somewhat sympathetic to that shooting guns is fun i bet you can still go to a gun range like I mean, like, again, it's a matter of, like, the degree to which I should care for it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, maybe maybe I should be more read on the people up north who have issues with this, and I could listen to that and get involved with it. But it's, like, again, it's, like, I guess on my priority list. Like, the government doing this is low on my priority list. <laughs> so it's, like, part of me is, like... Liberal government, why are you focusing on this when you could be focusing on so many other issues which are way more important than this issue? But then on the other flip side is like, I also care so little about it that it's like, sure, do your lie. <laughs> There's more immediate concerns uh, for me. but Yeah, like, you know, indigenous communities, especially up north, need guns that is like that is a reality i have seen people on the left this is the only like sort of uh smidgen of like discourse i've seen about this is some people on the left Mm -hmm. claiming that this is gonna like i don't know increase right-wing agitation against the trudeau government or something or grow the right-wing base or something and i i don't even see that happening like this is the like I think all last year there was only one story on this, on Rebel. And this is, like, yeah. the second time they brought it up. It's, like, I, I don't know if it's just because, like, the Canadian gun culture is very dissimilar from the American gun culture, that it doesn't have the same kind of salience uh, as it would mm-hmm. as if this was an American government doing it. Yeah, and, like, similarly, you know, we don't have the same kind of, like, mass shooting culture quite frankly um like there have been a couple sure but also like most guns yeah like 
guns aren't like a personal protection thing and aren't like you know like they're more of a like you know crime in cities and like hunting outside of cities versus like some sort of like hyper-political identity i guess and you know granted the people who are into guns into legal guns are generally like especially if they're in cities are going to be like right-wing nut jobs um we have a city councillor who is one um (laughs) but you know like is this going to like somehow reduce the traffic in like illegal guns probably not um especially like with the rise of 3d printing with the rise of like that kind of stuff um i'm excited for what that's gonna bring uh that'll be you know so like that's like i don't understand the logic behind it in a lot of ways but also like yeah i don't really care that much you know i obviously haven't investigated it i haven't looked into like what is going on with it because it's not that huge of a deal and like if we need guns for a leftist uprising i'm sure we can build them ourselves or whatever you know Um, i guess like in terms of like that discussion too because i've thought about this too where it's like in america like i get the the sort of like leftist discussion about guns and like if i was in mm -hmm. america i would probably have a gun for the concern of the fascist uprising i just i don't think that same threat exists in canada yet in large part because i feel like the far-right militia-type movements, again, aren't steeped in the guns in the same way that the Americans are and aren't in the same way allowed to, legally allowed to, like, parade them around in front of, like, you know, city halls and whatnot that they do in America. Like, I remember going to a, a protest here where, like, quasi-militia groups were, were defending uh, Islamophobes here in town. And, again for one being in a militia in canada is technically illegal or like close to that legality line so none of them would admit to being a part of a militia even though they had like three percenter badges like stuck to their their things and jdf logos and stuff like this but it's like so being in a militia is almost illegal and none of them were carrying because of course they would immediately be arrested if they were carrying uh in front of the city hall you know uh, mm-hmm. And so it's like that threat, at least right now, doesn't exist in Canada. So I don't have the same idea of like, you know, worried. I guess like if we ever reached a point like we would be at the same baseline of starting with accumulating guns as the right wing in Canada, <laughs> if need be. And it would be a, a simultaneous mad dash for them where in America, the left is totally outgunned and I can understand the, the need for self-defense in, in that. Uh, yeah. To no, our exactly. American like, listeners. <laughs> we're in a different context. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, that's why it's like, even like from a left-wing perspective of gun ownership, like I, I understand where that comes from. And it's like, it's just like in Canada, I, I, I don't know. Like I, I, I don't feel that that aspect of the threat is here yet. And so like, I, I don't see the need for it. And so it's like, I don't know. Like, again, in the context of, like, needing it for survival, like, you're hunting for food. Like, that's the one, like, yeah, totally, sure, I get it. But it's, like, and, like, in terms of, like, the illegal gun stuff, it's, like, of of course, they're going to come no matter what. Like, it still doesn't mean we shouldn't pass other laws to to make certain guns legally available to people, you know. 
And it's like, you know, I, I don't I don't know what the correlation is between them passing these kind of laws and reducing uh, the kinds of mass shootings that still do occur in Canada, you know, uh, even yeah. though it's way more uh, less. Uh, it doesn't occur as often as it does in the United States. But like, you know, sure, ban ban a few handguns and AR like guns. I, I, I sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just you know, and and I know the NDP hasn't supported it either, but I think like their line is the same line that you have, which is the the hunter uh, issue, and that's because the mm-hmm. NDP gets a lot of support from uh, the northern areas. So, and in that respect, okay, like cool, I understand the NDP's opposition, but like the liberals are are pretty much going to pass it. I don't think the NDP are going to object, if, <laughs> if I'm being honest. So, uh, so uh, there you go. And that's it. That was the week. So welcome to the new year. <laughs> Ten. Nine. <laughs> Not again. Um, in light of, uh, January 8th in Brazil, <laughs> um, there's this article posted in, in, in Ill Will magazine, um, called The Dilemma, written by, um, the collective Research and Destroy. Uh, I just, I love that name. Um, that is about, like, the like subtitle is political political economy for the time of monsters and it's kind of a like oh yeah you know this looks it you know in the like time of like laughable fascist uprisings you know the need to like kind of take it seriously still um, and, like, balancing the, like, ridiculousness with the, like, you know, this is a, this is a trial. This is a practice run. This is a. I was, I was thinking about that sort of, like, not to get you off there, but, like, it, in terms of it being, like, a practice run, like, I feel almost like part of what this is, is it's less even, it reminds me more of, like, have you ever heard of this, like, Wayne Gretzky saying, which is, like, you miss every shot you don't take? I feel yeah. like that has more to do with it rather than like a practicing because practice implies that like you do this to like improve so that you're better next time. And it seems that like they're less doing that. And it's more of like they're just more committed to like every opportunity to, to do a coup. They're going to do it even if it fails. And of course, what's going to yeah. happen is eventually they'll they'll like stack up a few wins, you know, <laughs> by sheer like number of doing the coups, you know, Um. They have a, I'm just going to read like one sentence of it, um, where it says, Every fascism has irony for a midwife, as the grinning upstarts of the Republic of Fiume in 1919 attest. It is always fake it till you make it and funny until it isn't. And in the passage from poetic fascist Denunzio's Fiume expedition to the fascism in full flower of Mussolini, we see clearly how today's Freikorp Chanlords would chuckle their way right through to death squads. Yeah. And, like, I think that kind of 
frames it quite well. Um, the ending of the article is kind of like, meh, I wasn't like a big fan of it. Like the last like third, maybe. Um, because then they started getting into like predictions for the future and like, you know, what this means on a more like in relation to like George Floyd and whatever. And that part was kind of less impressive than they're kind of like talking about the need to take these kinds of things seriously, even while, you know, they are laughable. I mean, even doing the show, a, a lot of it is laughable. Like David Menzies is a buffoon, but it's like, mm. as we've talked about like many times, like, the, the repeated transphobia in the audience they do have has a real world effect, even though he is just a buffoonish bigot, you know? And it's like, I, I do respect, like it, it is difficult to strike that balance. Cause like we have fun with it. Cause it's like, I don't know, but part of it is like, you have to laugh through the pain. And the other part of it is like, uh, we got to be entertaining for a show. <laughs> we'll talk about these issues, but then it's also, it's like, yeah, we still got to take it seriously, though. I think, like, that the end, the morale of this uh, podcast is we still need to take this seriously. And, like, so this one was writ- written in January 24th, 2021, right after Gen 6th in the U.S. And so it has, like, a few moments where it's just like, oh, yeah, like, you kind of predicted what happens or, like, what was coming. Because, uh, like, they have another line where it's like, everyone who survives within the halo of meeting got something out out of january 6th the fascists their myth the president his image the center its revenge and like you can kind of see that in like the inquiries that followed and everything like that where it was like nobody really gave a shit nothing really came of it but like the centrists were just like so like raring to go like they were just like yeah you know this is like our finally our moment to like pay back the wrongs of trump and you know and like the uprising and yada yada, where it's like nothing came of it, but they got there that feeling of something coming of it, and that's all that mattered was the imagery. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, this is a good article. Read it. Um, that's that's all I got this week. Yeah, I'll just end with like uh, how slow the legal system works too. Even if anything does come out of it, it's like uh, might be years to come. Still. <laughs> all of it, but I mean, but that also puts it in the perspective of like. The revenge all always will be on just over the horizon, you know. Um, mm-hmm. That being said, if you support and enjoy what you've heard today on this podcast, uh, please consider giving us a few bucks over on Patreon.com/slash Imperial News. Uh, I truly appreciate it. I think uh, based on how much we have, I, we're we're at revenue neutral in that uh, I finally paid off the computer I <laughs> spent at the beginning of the the pandemic. So. Uh, thank you, audience, for that. But uh, anything else uh, helps contribute to, to the work that we do. So uh, uh, thank you for those who donate. Uh, and if you want to stay informed about what we're doing, you can also find us on Twitter at Imperial News of the Z. We have a Discord set up. And uh, I will occasionally do Twitch streams every once in a while. It's It's been rare, but uh, I was sick for an entire month. And... Uh, I, I do plan on eventually doing YouTube videos as well, just uh, for fun, whenever I have the idea. So uh, you can find all the links to those in the show notes. And lastly, you can email us any question at imperial.fake.news at gmail.com. Special thanks to my friend Mason Tickle for the transition beats. You can find his work at masontickle.com. And thank you for listening. Please visit the website, www.12rulesfordeath.com. If you think life is in need of an antidote to chaos, 
Wait till you hear Jordan Peterson teach you about death. Death is so chaotic. <laughs> my, my, my throat still isn't fully healed, so I don't know if I could do the Jordan Peterson voice. I don't know what the rules are. <laughs> RSV has taken him from you. What what is death? <laughs> Just end the record. Albumbia, Albumbia, how lovely are your wheat fields?